Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Ruth, reading the first five verses, and this morning I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Let's give careful attention to the public reading of God's word as it's found in Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Machlon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and then the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Machlon and Hilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Let's pray together. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by your word, which is truth, and who has called us to engage in the study of that word. We pray that you would now sweeten this word in our hearts and in our minds, that we might grow in our knowledge of you and ourselves and the world that you have made, that we might more enjoy the calling that you have given to us, that we might honor you more along the path of life, praying in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Be seated, please. Well, we have begun a series on the book of Ruth. Uh, The last time I was here, our text was the entire book, and we kind of got a feel for the whole story, and for what the overall message of that book was. And now we're going to just uh, make our way through the book piece by piece. We're starting this morning with chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and uh, this text is on experiencing loss. The author has shaped this scene in the story to focus our attention. Uh, It's often the case that in paragraphs, we'll call this a paragraph, Uh, authors will structure that paragraph in a way to help us see the main point. One thing Hebrew authors like to do is they like to structure these things in kind of a a symmetry, but it's a symmetry with a reversal, so that the outside panels, we'll call them, correspond to each other, and then the next panels in correspond, and then the next panels in correspond until we come to the very center. This short text actually has seven of those panels, and I won't go into detail with regard to the correlations between all of them, but notice that in the very first panel there's loss. There was famine in the land. Notice in the very last panel there was loss. The two sons die. And the very center panel is loss. Elimelech dies. And by putting these three statements of loss in the outside, 
and right at the center, we have no doubt what this text is talking about in terms of its main point. It's talking about experiencing loss in life. Now, there are a lot of other fascinating details with regard to this, uh, these five verses. They're really beautiful, especially when you read them in Hebrew. But that, uh, that the, it's broken into two sections, verses 1 and 2, and then you have the loss of the husband, and Naomi is left alone. Then the loss of the sons, and Naomi is left alone. And so this text naturally falls into two parts, one to two, and then three to five. So let's look at each one of them. And in one to two, the focus is on what I could just call the loss of necessities. Uh, I know a couple of young men, happen to be two of my sons. Back a number of years ago, they were out of the house they were uh, in their first jobs. They bought a condo together right before the housing bubble. And of course, if any of you recall, that was a, a big hit in Florida, but especially the condo market because the condo market had been way overbuilt. I don't know the exact numbers, but they bought for, let's just say, around 200000 and then a number of years later, they sold for around 50. Um, but they're young. They're back on their feet. It's behind them. That's loss. That, that's significant loss with regard to the necessities of life. And I'm sure that we've all experienced those kinds of losses of necessity, some of them larger, some of them smaller. But that's where the story Starts. Notice the story starts by saying, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. We're given the context in the days when the judges ruled. And so, by saying that, the author of the book of Ruth is presuming something of us as his audience, right? What's he presuming? We know the book of Judges, we know what that era was like. Uh, one of my colleagues, he's preached here before, no doubt, Professor Glodo. Uh, he's well known for being uh, kind of a, uh, a, an encyclopedia on pop culture. And when he lectures, he's continually making references to TV shows and movies and music. Probably a lecture doesn't go by that he doesn't remember, doesn't mention like Bart Simpson in one way uh, or another. But you see, Mike's points are only most poignant if you know the story or the movie or the song to which he's making allusion. And so the author here presumes we know the book of Judges. He presumes that we know that this was an era that started off really, really well. He presumes that we know that there was a rapid downward spiral of denigration. A denigration in the religion of the people, denigration in the morality of the people. It's in that time that the book of Ruth is set, and at that time there was a famine. Well, that's a no-brainer, right? That goes together. The book of Deuteronomy says, If you live in keeping with my principles, I will pour out a blessing from heaven, rain, and you'll have crops in abundance. 
But if you don't live according to my will, I'll make the heavens like iron and you will quickly perish from the land. And so when the text says in the days of the judges, we know that what that was like. There was a famine. We say, OK, that makes perfect sense. This is when the book of Ruth takes place. It takes place in a time of loss. Now, notice that there is a, um, there's a, a city that is mentioned. Uh, there was a man from Bethlehem. And it's interesting that if you read in the book of Judges, Bethlehem is mentioned twice here. It's mentioned five times in the book of Judges. There's one small judge that is mentioned. We don't know anything about him other than his name, Ibzon, uh, Isbon. And Isbon uh, was a judge in Bethlehem. Then the only other places we read about Bethlehem in Judges are in the last chapters. And if you haven't read them, I guess I could encourage you to read them. They're God's word. But I warn you, they are about the most horrific chapters in the Bible with regard to the degradation of God's people. You think it's bad today? Read the end of the book of Judges. And what's interesting is the center for those negative stories is Bethlehem. And so there is the time of the judges, denigration, Bethlehem conjures up those horrific stories And so we're not surprised, again, that there's famine in the land. um, There's irony here, because Bethlehem in Hebrew is Beit Lechem, and Beit means house of, and Lechem means grain. Uh, And when we take grain and do certain things to it, it turns into bread. Uh, So house of grain, house of bread. Uh, and so we're, we're located where there should be an abundance of grain, but there's loss, there's famine in the land. And so this man decides, as the text says, to go to Moab to sojourn. Now, to sojourn is not a common word. You probably haven't been uh, in the grocery line of late talking to people about sojourning. Um, but you do have sojourners, uh, we don't call them snow, uh, sojourners, we call them snowbirds. Um, they come down here from the north, but their intention is not to stay permanently. That's a sojourner. In the ancient world, a sojourner was someone who went to live somewhere, but the intention was clearly, this is short term, this is not permanent. Uh, Perhaps you work for a company that's based in Orlando and they're going to open up an office in Seattle and they want you to go to Seattle for six months to oversee the opening of the office. That's a sojourn. And that's what this family was intending to do. They were intending to sojourn. They were intending to stay just for a short while. And where? The text says, in the fields of Moab. And again, the presumption is, when we're reading the book of Ruth, that we not only know the book of Judges, the presumption is we also know the book of Deuteronomy. And so if we know the book of Deuteronomy, when we read that they went to sojourn in the fields of Moab, we say, "Uh uh-oh, 
that's not a good idea. Why so? We'll turn to Deuteronomy chapter 23. Deuteronomy 23.3. No Ammonite or Moabite, no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever because they did not meet you with lechem, bread, and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. These were the arch enemies of Israel, not just from a military point of view, but from a theological point of view. These were the people who were not, I mean, you could come into the assembly of Israel from many countries except two, Ammon and Moab. And, but this is where this man and his family decide to go sojourn they decide to go sojourn with the people who were forbidden to become part of the assembly of the Lord. Perhaps somewhat like those folks that the New Testament speaks of as committing the unpardonable sin. That's Moab. So when we read in the text that they went to sojourn in Moab, we say, uh, this looks like bad going to worse. Now, one other thing that we see here, the author is very interested in names. He not only uses names, he doesn't say just a certain man with a certain wife and certain kids. He tells us their name, but he actually uses the word name quite a few times. He's very interested in names. And the names in this book all play in to the theology of the book. For example, the man's name is Elimelech. In Hebrew, Eli means my God, and Melech means king. His name says, my God is king. What's implied in that is that my God is in control, My God is in control of everything, including this famine. And yet, in spite of his name affirming that his God is in control, he's actually leaving the presence of God. He's leaving the promised land. He's going uh, eastward across the Jordan River. He's reversing the conquest, going into the land of the Moabites, those who had committed the unpardonable sin. He's living in complete contradiction to his name. He's lived, his name says his God's in control, but he's living as if he's the one who is in control. Now, his wife's name is Naomi. And in Hebrew, Naomi means pleasant. 
Her life up to this point could have just been described as living the American dream. It was a good life. Everything was pleasant. My God is king, uh, Ms. Pleasant. They have two sons. Gets a little dark here. Machlon. Machlon means ill. Hilion means pass away. And of course, what's going to happen to both of these young men? We don't know how, but they're both going to die before the end of this short text. And so in these first two verses, we're seeing loss. Loss of the necessary things in life. And loss is painful. And part of what this text is telling us is that in this world in which we live, when, as we have confessed, we as humanity have sinned against the glory of God and gone our own way, the world doesn't operate the way God originally intended it to operate in creation. And we experience loss of material things. But the story goes on to kind of deepen the dramatic tension by talking about more poignant loss, more personal loss, and that is the loss of loved ones. And I know many of you have experienced that in one way or another, one degree of proximity or another. Uh, Andy is feeling that right now. Oddly enough, the day that his mother passed away was my mother's birthday. She would have been 90 uh, yesterday. Uh, We lost her two years ago. Lost my dad three years ago. Uh, Some of you, if you watch early Sunday morning news, you can perhaps feel a little bit of the pain. How many people in Orlando this morning are upside down emotionally because of devastating loss? If you haven't heard, there was a mass shooting in a club and 20-some people killed, 40-some others uh, wounded and hospitalized. Now, just think of 20, if, if, if those 20 people just had two family members, and they had more. The poignancy of loss. This is not the way it's supposed to be. When God created us, he said in the story, good, 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 very good. And then we ate the apple. And the world gets turned upside down. And by God's grace, we can still taste a lot of goodness in life. But the reality is, loss is part of the path that we walk in life. Now, it's interesting in verse 3. Notice just a couple of things that are, are of note. It says, but Elimelech the husband of Naomi. 
Now, that might not strike you as odd, but it is. Because when we first meet them, Naomi is the wife of Elimelech. She starts as the wife of Elimelech, but she's no longer the wife of Elimelech. Now, it is Elimelech who's the husband of Naomi because he's dead. And she has now entered into a new phase of life that she doesn't know what to do with. She's now the head of a household. She's been living her entire life with her husband as the one in that patriarchal culture who was the total head of the home in all ways. And now she, by his death, has been thrust in. She's becoming the main character. No longer wife of Elimelech. Now she is Naomi and he is husband. And notice it also says the names of, uh, in in verse uh, 3 it says, and she was left with her two sons. But if you go back to verse 2, they're his two sons. His two sons now are her two sons. In her loss, she has weight. Not only all of the emotional stuff of losing her husband, but the burden of life has fallen on her. She's now the head They're no longer his sons under his responsibility primarily. They're now her sons, her responsibility. And uh, it's, it's hard for us in our culture to feel, to understand the depth of Naomi's loss and the burden of the weight uh, that she bore in that ancient culture. She's left alone. The text says her husband died and she's left alone, comma, with her two sons. And then we get reference to Moab again. The two sons at this point decide to get married and they marry Moabite wives. And we say, oh, it's going to get worse. Because not only is there the the general prohibition of bringing Moabites into the assembly of God. But remember that book called Judges with the downward spiral? There is one key, one key, uh, I don't know what the word is. There was one key concept that got that downward spiral going. And it was intermarriage. Not racial intermarriage. I don't find anything in the Bible that says that we can't marry in between races. But there's plenty in the Bible that says we can't marry in between faiths. And if you go for just a moment to the book of Judges and the third chapter, if you don't have time to read the whole book of Judges... Uh, In the third chapter, starting in the third verse, uh, I'm sorry, in the fifth verse, you get the whole book in two verses. Cliff's notes. Here's the whole book of Judges. The people of Israel lived among the Canaanites. See, they were supposed to be conquering them, but they, they quit conquering them and they lived among them. They lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons 
See that interfaith marriage. And then what happened? They served their gods. And then the downward spiral takes place. And so these two young men take Moabite wives. And we're reading this in the book context of Judges and Deuteronomy. And we think this does not bode well uh, for their futures. Now, notice how we get some names again. The author doesn't just say they married two Moabite women. He says the name of the first one was uh, Orpah. Now, Orpah means neck. And neck is used in the Bible in an expression like stiff-neck. And stiff-necked is a way of saying somebody is stubborn. And as it turns out, she's going to be stubborn in a reverse kind of way, and she's going to not come into the assembly of the Lord. Orpah is going to be a foil. The other woman's name is Ruth. There are a couple of possibilities for the meaning of her name It doesn't really matter because they both bring us to the same point. I think her name is related to the word for friendship. The book of Proverbs says there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And Ruth is a friend who sticks closer than a son or a daughter or a sister. And so against the backdrop of Orpah, stubborn, we have the brilliance and the beauty of Ruth. Now note a little time indicator that we get. They were there for 10 years. What started out as a brief sojourn ends up being a long-term stay. They thought, well, we're just going to go over to those Moabites very briefly just to deal with our loss of necessity. But then they experienced the loss of loved ones. And things just don't go the way they planned. When we we walk in a way that is contrary to the Lord, we may think that it's just a momentary detour along the path. But here, what was intended to be a short-term stay ended up to be a long stay. They were there for 10 years. They lived there. And then we have the loss of the sons. The sons die. Now, whoever wrote Ruth is a master storyteller. Have you ever watched a movie or read a book a second time? And when you go over it a second time, you just see things that you didn't see the first time. There are all kind of details that are woven in that are meaningful. But sometimes when we we read them, we just kind of go over it. Here's a small detail for you as we go back to the very end of Uh, our text. It says in verse, uh, the end of, uh, it says in verse 5, both Machlon and Chilion died so that the woman was left alone. 
without her two sons and her husband. And it's interesting to pay attention to what the author didn't say. He didn't say Naomi was left alone. She has She has experienced such profound loss that she's no longer Naomi. She's the woman. She's lost her name. She's lost her identity. She has lost her way in life. You see, it's not just the problem of losing stuff. Or even more deeply and painfully and personally, losing loved ones. This led to her losing herself. Now, it's tough to preach on a part of a story. That's pretty negative, isn't it? So I've got to at least tell you that, Lord willing, the next time I come back and we look at the next section, there's going to be one key word repeated through that text, and it's going to be the word return. She starts to return. Not only to Bethlehem, but also to her God. Because although we don't know it yet, we can imagine that she might be feeling deeply estranged from God because of all of this loss. I tell my students that whenever they're preaching on a text out of the Old Testament, they have to see some kind of hope in that text. Even the end of the book of Judges. Why do I say that? Because the Apostle Paul says in Romans 14 that everything that was written in the past, meaning the Old Testament, was written for our instruction so that through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Paul says that every Old Testament text, like Ruth 1 to 5, every one of those texts was written so that we might have hope. And in this text, there is a beautiful ray. There's a beautiful ray of hope. It's a ray ray that can barely be seen. It's almost imperceptible. It is, it's such a small ray of hope that Naomi couldn't see it. It was there, but Naomi couldn't see it. And that ray has a name. Her name is Friendship. Her name is Ruth. But Naomi's oblivious to the ray. Did you notice that the text at the end says the woman was left alone? That's how she felt. In reality, she had two people with her. The stubborn one who was going to go back. But the other one who says, where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. And your people will be my people. And your God, my God. I am the friend that sticks closer to a brother. The ray was there. 
She just couldn't see it. And that's understandable, isn't it? When we experience loss, there is always hope there. Always. It's just at times we are so enmeshed in our pain that we can't see the hope that is in front of us. There has to be hope. And so, as you experience loss from time to time in various ways, at least be open. I can't control your, your, your perceptions, what you see, what you don't see, what you hear, what you don't hear. But at least be open to the fact that even in the darkness, light can dawn for the gracious and the upright. Be open to that Ruth, that ray of hope from God. Have faith. As Hebrews 11.1 says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen. It may seem completely dark, but by God's grace, you can have the faith to believe that somewhere there is a ray of hope shining. Why? Because as we read on in Hebrews 13, 5, God repeats what he has said time and again throughout the scriptures, old and new. I will never leave you or forsake you. You see, Ruth is so devastated that she thinks she's alone. She, thank you, Adele. My wife always catches me on those. Naomi is so devastated that she cannot see Ruth standing in front of her. She is so radically devastated, she does not even know that God is with her. Psalm Psalm 13, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long must I hide my face? Will you hide your face and I have to wallow in all of my trouble. How long will you forget me forever? I often speak of that psalmist as being in double trouble. The first trouble that he's in, that he's in trouble. The second trouble that he's in is that he doesn't think God's anywhere to be found in that trouble. And that's where Naomi was, experiencing loss. But there was hope there. There was sufficient ground for faith there. Hope in God. Have faith in Him. The conviction of things not seen. Now, one final remark. God is so gracious to us. He knows that in times of loss, we can't see what's right in front of us. We can't see our roots. We can't see Him. He understands that. And so one of the things that he does is he gives us the Lord's Supper. Some of us might be struggling this morning as to where is God right now? 
you know that in Orlando, there have to be countless families that are saying, where is God right now? We have that same struggle. And in the Lord's Supper, God lets us see the bread and the cup. He lets us hold it in our hand. We can feel the bread. We can feel the cup. He lets us taste it with our mouths. He gives us tangible rays. He says, I I get it. I know there are times when when you can only see the loss. I know there are times when you can't see the ray of hope. And so I give you something very tangible to build your faith along the way. Taste, feel, smell. With your senses, experience the reality of the promise. I will never leave you or forsake you. Let's pray.